Exodus chapter 7, let's turn there, and as you work your way there, let me thank the Lord for a chance to be in his word today. Father, we revel in the fact that we get to look into your word. We are not trying to navigate our, our life uh, in this earth on our own opinions and our own views, um, our likes and dislikes, Lord. We are learning um, progressively to trust you and trust your word. And the more we do that as individuals and corporately as a church, the, the more peace we find. Uh, we, we find more joy when we learn to live our lives according to your word. And Lord, to see a God that is so greatly displayed with mighty powers beyond explanation, Lord, comfort our heart that we're following you, Lord. So I pray that you would remind us of those truths today, Lord. Still many sick in our church, um, not able to even be here tonight, or children out of school and so forth, Lord. So we do pray that you would uh, continue to heal us up and uh, bring us back together soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm trying to finish a sermon from last week while jumping onto one I was studying this week. So if you have your notes there, um, what I want to think I want to do is start with a second point. <laughs> This is probably not wise to do if you're young preachers in here, but uh, let me see if I can do it anyway. Um, we're going to start with point two today because I want to use this more as an introduction um, for what we're going to get into, particularly into these plagues and uh, the role of the staff, the staff that's in Aaron's hands and the serpent and so forth. So let's jump to point two. And it's an interesting point. I wrote this, la- this part of this last week for last week's sermon. I didn't get to it. Um, but it's, it's a fun little title. Um, Will the real and living God please stand up? Uh, because this is a battle. This is a, this is a battle of gods, right? Uh, the battle between the living true God and these dead gods of, of Egypt, and it is a battle. It's not a fair fight. <laughs> uh, it's really not a fight at all. Uh, but, but in a sense, in this world, this very pagan, religious world, every um, tribe of people on the earth has their own gods. But Egypt happens to be the, 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 the nation that's ruling the world. And so they have, in their minds, the greatest gods, and Pharaoh being one of them. So, our God is going to display himself in a mighty way. So we'll jump in with point two. We'll come back to point one and then to point three. We'll see if we can pull that off today. Now, as we begin to look at this, there's various terms used to describe um, what falls upon Egypt. Um, Some of these terms we'll see as plagues. Other times we'll see signs. God will say, show them this sign. Um, These wonders, acts of judgment. You, You see that terminology all through here. And that's important terminology. Because each of these mighty acts that God does is a blow, a a massive blow displaying his power to afflict judgment. Now I want you to think about that for a little bit. If you want to afflict judgment on somebody, uh, what would you do? Well, you might punch them or do something like that. But can you display power against an entire nation by speaking it? So, so every one of these plagues, judgments, signs are a display that God has the ability to afflict judgment. Now only the God of gods can do that. <laughs> All these little demigods and things that think they're gods, they can't do that. They like to say they can, but this one can. 
He can afflict judgment. So you're going to see this over and over. And Pharaoh, he had, he had rejected this true and living God. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 2. And the Egyptians, they have been afflicting cruel acts against Israelites. So God's coming. And, and the Lord certainly, um, think about this, the Lord could have delivered his people with just one powerful act. He could just say, you're free. He could have done that, right? Is there any doubt that he could have done that? You're free. That's not how he's going to work here. He's going to put on a world event to show who he is. So instead, God chooses to expose a greater scope of his power, a greater scope of his judgment through signs, wonders, particularly these 10 plagues. Now, each plague is uh, a way that God shows a unique aspect of his authority um, when we study them. Each one is going to show that he has power over certain things, that he has authority over certain things. And then ultimately, his goal is to display that the gods of Egypt can't hold a candle to him, right? So he's going to take on them. And as many of you are starting to find out, each of these plagues and what they attack and what they do display gods of Egypt. So he's just toppling them one after another. Well, bring on your next one. Boom, over he goes. Next one, okay? So we'll watch God do that throughout this time. Um, let me be careful these notes. I'm, I'm going to be doing them out of order, so I've got to keep track of them. Um, it's also important to note that there's much opposition in, in the, what a Christian world against these plagues. And I, I just want to take a moment to kind of uh, give some give some thoughts here because there are all kinds of liberal theologians who constantly claim that these these plagues were not nearly as severe as the Bible makes them out to be. And they were, many of them say they're brought about by natural causes. So they believe and teach that each plague brought about a, a, a consequence or a sequence of, the, of another, right? So they would say something like, well, see the blood pushed the frogs out of the ground, and then the frog, frogs died, and that brought about the gnats and the flies, and, and, you know, and they just kind of work their way through those things. For instance, many believe, if you read the liberal theologians, which you have to read, you know, there's us that study this, we need to know this, so we, we read them sometimes, that many of them believe that the Nile did not turn to blood. They believe it was some kind of red tide. Well, wait a minute, we live in Florida. <laughs> You're not going to fool us. Because we know that red tide goes along a coastal. It isn't in every body of water. <laughs> our lakes don't turn into red tide, our streams. <laughs> so, but they love to do this thing because they're trying to, they come across like we're going to help you understand the Bible better. So we're going to explain in natural things that happen so you'll know God. Brothers and sisters, our God speaks creation into existence. We do not have to soft pedal a God who can turn water to blood and water to wine. <laughs> we don't have to explain it away, and yet that's what they try to do, right? So others still argue that the plagues were not as severe as they came out to be, as the scriptures have been embellished over the years. And clearly, clearly, this is just a rejection of inerrancy and authority of, of God's word. Now, Here's where this all goes and why this is important. These same liberal theologians also believe that, um, that when Exodus happened, when Israel exodus is, 
of Egypt, it wasn't as defined in the Bible. Now there's a real problem with that. And here's why. Because the exodus of the nation out of the Israel is really a foreshadowing of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here God graciously allows us to look back into Exodus to understand the role of a a blood sacrifice, a sacrifice of something that's completely innocent, that did nothing to deserve the death, but that blood sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice would clear the way for you and I and to cheapen that. No wonder they don't understand salvation. And that's why the liberal theologians are, are, are left a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, through the word alone, for his glory alone. Because it starts here when they reject the authority of God's word. So this is extremely important to understand this. Now, though there, there is still, now I want to go the other side of this a little bit. There's still some human reasoning that connect it to, to dead frogs and flies. And, and, and they're there's, there's some things that can happen there, right? And people could say, well, yeah, flies would come. As we're going to see, he brings a wave of flies. <laughs> I've been around a lot of dead animals, and it's bad. You poke them, and they explode, and flies are there, and it's a, it's a mess. But this is way beyond that. But still, think about this. You, 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 can't, you can't connect everything here. And here's my thought. You can't, there, there can't be no connection to insects and the outbreak of what seems to be, and we'll get to this in a little bit, is it seems to be of anthrax that wipes out the Egyptian livestock. You, you can't make that jump. How do flies produce that? And you can't make this out that boils somehow bring about hail. I mean, you may feel like you've been hit by hail if your body was covered with boils, but you can't make that jump that's way too far of a leap. And so none of these plagues um, can, can bring about things like darkness and the separation of darkness and light between Egypt and Goshen and so forth like that. And then the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn can be only delivered, only delivered by the giver of life and death. Nobody can do that. And we know God has the ability to do this. I was thinking about this today. When, when Adam and Eve get the boot out of the garden because God's going to protect them from getting back to the tree of life so they can't live in this sinful state forever so they can die. It's a gift of death. I call that the gift of death. What's he put at that? What's he put at the gate of the garden in Eden? He puts an angel with a sword. Could be the same angel that shows up in, in Exodus. And so nobody can do this. This is not natural causes that come. So we must be careful with some of the false teaching that's out there. And very, very nice, well-meaning people teach this kind of stuff. And, and it's taught probably in churches in our own community. But not all who, who make the link to natural phenomena in Egypt are trying to undermine the authority of Scripture. And I, and I think there's reasons for that. Well, because since, we, since the fall of man, God's creation has gone under lots of plagues and lots of problems, Right? I mean, we see floods that God, of course, brings upon the earth, but, but we, see, we see lots of people die. Um, there, there's a famine in Joseph's day, right? So that's, I mean, that happens, right? God, certainly God's behind all those things. So death and tragedy and uh, uh, natural, what we call natural uh, phenomena or, or massive catastrophe, 
that's happening. Why? Because the world is fallen. <laughs> and there's all kinds of difficulties that are going on. We're all coughing and hacking because of sin. <laughs> right? We live in a fallen world and our, 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 we're, we're subject to that now. And so there are things that happen. And so this is, this is not, uh, what I want to say this, is, it's way out of the ordinary, the events that God does. But they ha- this nation had seen a drought hit it like man had never seen. Seven years of plenty, seven years of drought. So um, there are some reasons to go, well, wait a minute. This earth is really taking on some difficult things. So, um, but the scale of this plague, there's no precedent to them. Um, and, and God is at control of these. And, I, and I, what's cool about this, as we'll see this, is there's the selectivity of disaster that, that this, that's divinely determined by God. So there's this selectivity that God does. How he's, what he does first, what he does second, what he does third, how he sets this up. Even down to what plagues affect the Israelites versus the plagues that affect the Egyptians. And you'll notice as we go along, one, uh, plague one and two hit everybody. Egyptians, Israel. Plague three through nine only hit the Egyptians. Plague 10 hits them all. But plague 10, of course, um, the, the Israelites obey God. The death angel moves from the camp. There's no death in there. And the Bible say that in every home in Egypt, there was death. So it's, it's powerful to watch God set this up. He's orchestrating all of this. So this proves that the series of plagues were divinely instituted. They're controlled by God to bring about his purpose. Now, another thought here I want to just uh, talk about for a moment is just as Aaron's staff, we're going to see this in a moment, turns into a stake and consumes this symbolic religious power of, of Pharaoh, so too the plagues expose the emptiness of the Egyptian religion. It, it's, it's all tied together. He's exposing that these are not gods, and he's exposing that they're empty. Even to the point when we see the very end, the people are screaming in a way that's a very loud, they're, they're, they want those people gone, and they said, we will all die if they don't go. <laughs> that's what God wanted to show his power through those things. So the plagues emphasize in one way or another um, the deadness of the gods of Egypt. And each one of the plagues becomes a destruction to their nation, not a salvation. See, our God saves us. And he can't be beat. (laughs) Their gods that they thought could save them all are destroyed all are beaten and actually have nothing to do to help them in in one way or another. So that's what God is trying to get across to these things. The things they worship are now destroyed. And and just let's put a little bit of application here. Be careful what you worship. The world's worshiping all kinds of things today, aren't they? All things that will go down in destruction. And Christians get hooked up in this stuff. We put our, we put our wealth or we put our, our desires or our roots down in something that will be destroyed. And, and I love the way God does this. As he shows us you better be careful what you think is going to save you. Because I'm going to destroy everything that you think you could find your way to me to. Now, again... 
This shows us that this battle is not between Moses and Pharaoh. It's not between Egypt and Israel. This battle is between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And so who is this true and living God? Who's the sovereign ruler of Egypt and the universe? Look at chapter 12 real quick. Um, I just want to give you a peek ahead and why he's doing what he's doing. This is the 10th at, at the end of the 10th plague, he's about ready to do what he's going to do uh, as he goes through and takes out the firstborn. Uh, but this is a very important little hinge verse here at the end of these plagues. He says, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. This is catastrophic. I mean, catastrophic. Every home gets hit by this. And then he says this, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. What a statement. I'm gonna strike every home and I'm gonna prove their gods are worthless. That's what he's up against. And the world wants to pit gods against our God. In the end, he will destroy them. In Numbers chapter 33, verse three and four, when Moses is rehearsing to the nation as he's re- recording the Pentateuch somewhere out in the Sinai plain as they're awaiting to go into the promised land. Moses says this in Numbers 33, three through four. They journeyed from Ramses, he's rehearsing this, on the first, in, the first day, in the first of the month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the next day after Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. Now listen to this last verse, verse four. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom God had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgment on their gods. Now I want you to believe me. This is, this is about God showing that he's God and they're not. Gina said to me, we were talking, because she has to put up with me at home because I get studying this and I gotta tell somebody about it, right? So she goes, I'm gonna hear this tonight, you know that? And I go, but, but honey, this is so cool. Because sometimes we just think, oh yeah, God's gonna show Pharaoh. He is showing their gods that they're not gods. He's showing the world that. And this is why we have no other gods before him. Do not bow down to anything. The plagues are the final devastation of the so-called gods of Egypt. Miracles are often displayed sparingly as we look at the scriptures. So you think about time frame, right? Um, we see the great miracles through scripture, but when you think about everyday life that's going on and the generations that are throughout the Bible, miracles are really kind of sparingly and they're usually concentrated around great spiritual times of crisis, right? When, when somebody's coming up against God and his people or his prophets. And most of the time, miracles are displayed in these religious contests. So particularly when the power and the supremacy of the Lord are at stake. So we see things like um, Joshua's bringing them into the land. The first, first thing they gotta do, what is take, what, what city? Jericho, thank you. So God tells Joshua, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna get everybody together, come and put them in all the tribes, and we're gonna walk around the city every day once. Now that would scare you to death when you've already heard some of the things that are going on, right? Because the spies had seen the Jordan dry up and them cross across, because I'm sure they had spies out there watching Israel. They had seen what, their, what God had done. They'd heard what God had done in Egypt and so forth. So there's always these miraculous things. And then on the seventh day, they walk around this, this city seven times and God drops the walls. 
This is a pagan nation that rejects the living God and anytime there's a contest against God, this is why we see this, this great God of ours comes and shows himself without, without man doing anything most of the time. Of course, the walls go down, they go in and take the people. Um, another example of that would be Elijah when he's engaging with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember this whole scene, right? They, they're, they, they're there and they're screaming and hollering all day and cutting themselves, dancing around this, you know, this altar and <laughs> Elijah's having a little fun with it. I think we all would. You know, maybe he's asleep, yell louder. He's, he's kind of mocking them in a way. But then he gets up, right? He's up to bat now. And that whole demeanor changes. And the prayer that comes out of him is this prayer of sovereignty, humility before God, exalting him as powerful above all things. And what does God do? Man, he sends a bolt of fire down, licks it up, and, and all, the, all the Baal's prophets are killed. And, and it's an amazing thing. And so any time that God is opposed um, nationally or, or in like many of these scenes, he shows up and provides a tremendous uh, display of his power. One more to think about that. In John 11, when Jesus is about ready to raise um, Lazarus from the dead, remember what he says. He, he basically, here's me paraphrasing this. He says, Lord, raise him from the dead, not for my own self. Because I know who I am, and I know our relationship, and I know what we're about ready to do. We're going to call this dead man out of this cave, and he's going to walk out, and everybody's going to be astonished. But do it for them that they'll believe. So what bothers you when you read liberal theologians who read this stuff and then don't believe, that's a problem. So you and I read the scriptures is to help our faith that we serve a God who can call dead people out of caves, (laughs) right? Who can knock down walls of nations and can turn water into blood and wine. So, finally, in this long introduction of this point, as I'm setting all this up, the plagues um, were a punishment on Pharaoh. They were a punishment on the Egyptians for the way they treated Israel and robbed God of his glory. But God is after to show who is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, isn't he? And, and, and even in all of this, I, don't miss this too, that God graciously repeats warnings. Let my people go or I will do this. He is a gracious and kind God, even with the wicked. And we, remember we talked long about this and it was a, it's a deep subject because we talked about the hardening of the heart and five times Pharaoh hardens his own heart, five time, ten times God hardens his heart and there's a bunch of times we don't know who's hardening and God has control over that. He has the right Uh, to save who he wants and to leave who he wants in condemnation. He has the right to do that. But he's also very gracious because he keeps sending Moses and Aaron and says, let my people go. And what they're saying is submit to the God of Israel. Submit to the God of Israel. And there's no way this hard-hearted man's going to do that. So Pharaoh is not going to release the Israelites voluntarily. So God strikes the land with terror You're gonna see these people are so terrified at the God of the Hebrews by the end, they are crying out for him to go, for them to go. And so he strikes them with his devastating series of unprecedented disasters, um, and that leads to Pharaoh and the Egyptians just driving them out of the land. So clearly these plagues were also used to help a reluctant nation of Israel as well. I don't wanna leave this out. Israel was reluctant. 
And the reason we know this is because when Moses comes back, his first time back, he comes and he says, look, Pharaoh, let them go. Pharaoh gets ticked off at him. And then what does he do? He makes labor twice as hard on the, Egyptian, I mean, on the Israelites. So they're reluctant. So uh, one of the things I want us to catch is God's people, us, sometimes get hard hearts as well. And God demonstrates through his word that he is the God of gods. So Israel is reluctant in this. So God's going to not only show his power to triumph over the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, but he's proving to his own people who he is. And I think this is good counseling. Because if you come to counseling with a good pastor who handles his Bible, he's going to show you the authority of God's word and the authority of a God who loves us and demonstrates his power in our life to save us. And, and, and let me add this thought, then I'll close this point. You know what the greatest miracle is? You think frogs and flies and blood and cattle, you know what the greatest miracle is? Saving us. Don't miss that. It is the greatest miracle of all that he would save wretches like us, us deserving hell's fire, eternal damnation, that he would rescue us. We had nothing to offer. We, we, our, our, our best days, our filthy rags. It's the greatest miracle of all that he saved us. So we look at this and we realize that like Israel, we too become stubborn. And Israel will complain in the desert and they'll talk about how good things were back in Egypt. Really? You want to go back to that? And yet God, he has a plan. And this is why I named this title, this, this, the title of this the sermon of the title is God of an Involuntary Freedom. And look, how many of us did he drag to salvation? <laughs> he does, doesn't he? he? He comes and pulls you in because that's the way he's got to save us. Let's go back to the first point there. Point number one on your notes, but it's really two. And this will get us in the text and we'll... Start moving through the rest of this chapter. The battle for the divine possession begins. It doesn't begin with the plagues. It actually begins here in Pharaoh's courtroom or Pharaoh's palace here. And we'll see in this section that the disappointed Moses, um, that he's he'd been disappointed at how things worked out, but now that experience seems to be over and the battle's being staged here. And, and this is, is, again, not in a battle between two nations. This is, this is God, this is Yahweh showing himself who he is against the Egyptian gods. So here's Moses. We'll see him here in verse eight. He's with Aaron now. Um, he's God's prophet, so he's speaking for God to men. And he's standing between God and his people, and he's acting as a, a mediator here. And, and he's divinely um, being directed to challenge Pharaoh. Moses would not have done this on his own, but, he, but God's divinely challenging him uh, or, or directing him to challenge Pharaoh, who Pharaoh himself believes he's the sun god. So, so this is not an easy thing, but, but Moses has to believe God has a plan here. Now, Pharaoh represents a lot of things, right? He represents evil and demonic forces. Certainly Satan is behind him in this. This is pagan and godless. And so um, here's, here's, Aaron, here's Moses and Aaron standing before this world-renowned leader, this man who believes he's a god, and the showdown is going to be about to start here. Now, one little thought as you go forward, and I never want to lose this thought as we trail our way through the Old Testament, is this is about the seed and the serpent, isn't it? 
So it takes you right back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And, and it is not by mistake there's a serpent on the head, uh, the head gear of, of the pharaohs and, and the pharaoh's leaders. I mean, this takes you right back. This is where the seed that is in the line of Judah, it's in this nation. God has been protecting it so it cannot be stamped out. And, and Satan's doing everything he can using this pharaoh and this wicked nation to stop that seed from passing that seed on down to the life of Christ. So don't, don't miss that. But there's this covenant keeper God in the middle of this. So this seed of this woman is at stake. Um, God's gonna conquer and this seed is going to go forward. So uh, you can um, rest assured on those things. Now look at verse eight with me and we'll start moving through some of these verses. Now the Lord uh, spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, verse nine, when Pharaoh speaks to you um, saying, work a miracle, isn't that interesting? Then you will say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Now, as Moses and Aaron now return to Pharaoh, that had to be a little bit of a scary thing, but they do what God tells them to do. It's not just merely to repeat God's commands, but it's to begin to display his power. So clearly Aaron must have Moses' staff in his hand, as you can see here, um, and, and, and they're being directed here. Now, now remember this, the snake's importance to Pharaoh. It, it's a symbol of power, authority, poison. It, it really is a reference to a God who has sovereignty. So before any plagues come about, God's going to take on their little, uh, we call it maybe a mascot. Maybe we could use that. That's kind of their mascot, right? He's going to take that on, isn't he? Now, look at verse 10 with me. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron threw a staff down, and Pharaoh and his servant uh, before Pharaoh and his servant, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called for the wise men and the sorcerers. They also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. Verse twelve: For each threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So there's no trickery here on Moses and Aaron's part, right? This is the divine action of God. But in verse 11, notice Pharaoh calls these wise men, these sorcerers, they're called magicians of Egypt. These would be his counselors, right? Um, Men that performed evil acts against other kings, right? Put a hex on them, um, do something to scare them off. Uh, uh, give me counsel of what to do next. But I want you to understand, these, are, these magicians are not entertainers like we would see on you know, TV or some sort, right? The, these men were referred to, and in, in, in this is down in their, their, their writings of their documents. These were magician priests. So they're part of the worship that goes on. And doubtlessly, they're controlled by the demonic world in some way. But, but these are the same, they're the same men that Pharaoh in Joseph's day would have turned to for wisdom about these dreams. Nebuchadnezzar would have turned to them. It's the same kind of guys. They're, they're ones that uh, give counsel to the king. Now listen to this. In each and every case, God dominates these wicked men over and over. Every time the world produces a wicked man, God dominates and shows that their power is worthless. Now, it's significant that God chooses the serpent first to display his power. And I, and I, I just want to make this point. In God's first act, he takes on the Egyptian religious system. Before the plagues even start, the, the, the religious system taught 
that the serpent, this cobra that was put on their headgear that they had in their court systems that all their staffs mimicked was part of this religious system that taught that the Egyptian religion was sovereign over all religions of the world. So what's God do first? Before the plague comes, we're gonna swallow it. Isn't that amazing? Before any plagues happen, before blood and flies and frogs and all that kind of stuff, he takes on their their most significant symbol of religion. Notice in verse 11 that Pharaoh calls these aids in after Aaron's staff becomes the serpent. And, and not discounting demonic forces here, but I think this gave them time, the magicians time to, to respond to this. And I read quite a bit on this because I hadn't thought about why God did this first before the plagues. But as I read about it, there's a cobra in that area that they used to raise. They have people that raise them and, and, and they handle them all the time. Um, but they had a pressure point, and I read quite a bit on this, and they could pressure point and, and often make those snakes stiff as a board. And it's very possible, it's very possible, outside of the demonic forces that are probably in place here, that they had a minute to make those, those snakes stiff as a board, and as they came in and, and they threw them down in front of Moses and Pharaoh, that as they hit the ground, um, they awoken. It's possible. Now, now remember, these staffs are all over. These staffs, they would carry them, have a little serpent head on them. This Pharaoh had them. The, the, these religious leaders had them. So this was a very common place uh, to have um, these around him. Uh-oh, so no. so here, comes, here comes these guys. They throw these snakes down in verse 13. Excuse me, verse um, 12. For each of them threw down the staff and, and they turn into serpents. There's not a lot of explanation here. Certainly, as I said, this, there's a demonic forces at, at hand here. But, but Aaron's staff turns and swallows up these staffs. So, so think about this. The first act, this is their, their sovereign symbol of their religion that has power and authority over all things. God takes his staff, the staff of God, and swallows them up before any of the plagues happen. And then look at verse 13. And yet, and yet, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and did not listen to them. Um, Verse 13, the Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He doesn't accept the evidence in front of him. And those who, um, and I I think that's what happens so often to people, um, God shows his miraculability to do things that man can't explain and to think about our own salvation. When we share the gospel with somebody, it's, it's a miraculous event. God takes dead people, people who are not saved, and gives us the promise of eternal life. And people hear that over and over. They hear it at funerals. They attend church every once in a while. Maybe they were raised in church because their grandparents took them or their parents took them. They hear that and they reject that. And their heart continues to harden over and over and over. And the world's full of people who have seen the wonder of God. They've seen changed lives. They've seen people who were messed up with all kinds of sin in their life. God changed them and saved them. They see people's marriages get healed. They see the truth of God's word lived out in front of them in the church. And in the end, they still reject them. And this this is what Pharaoh does. God just swallowed up the symbol of his own religion right in front of him. Now, now we go to point three. Got it. So now we get to the plague, the final plague. Um, the scripture uh, here, the first plague uh, water 
turn to blood. The scripture do, um, doesn't make um, too much about the number of plagues. Uh, and yet, I think the number of 10 is an, is an important number. Um, it, it seems that maybe 10 could be to talk about this emphasis of God's total judgment on the nation. Um, and we'll see as we start into these plagues, they come in, they come in waves of three, and then the 10th one. So one, two, three, three, four, five, and six, and then seven, eight, and nine, those are the three, and then he comes with a knockout punch of 10. Now, as, as we look at this, each group of three, the first two come with a warning. So you're gonna see him send Moses into Pharaoh, um, he'll meet with Pharaoh in some way or another, and he'll give a warning. And then the third plague of the one, two, three, four, five, six, there is no warning. He just brings the plague. And he does that consistently throughout the first nine. So there is, uh, there's also this general increase of severity. As the plagues go, they get severe. Um, and we'll see that. Um, you think that blood, the Nile turned into blood would get your attention, but man, by the end, the severity is unbelievable. So the first set of plagues affect um, the Egyptians and the Israelites, particularly one and two. Um, but the last seven, um, well, the last seven, including, not including 10, he sets Israel apart and he does some major, major dividing line there. And we'll look at, because we've got to look at he, how does he do darkness in light and separate that. We'll, we'll get to that. Now, look at verse 14 and 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. That's the word for uh, strong. He's strongly standing against me. Uh, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the banks of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that, that was turned into a serpent. So here in 14 and 15, now notice that the Lord gives a command to Moses and Moses obeys and, and that's showing God's divine control of everything. He says, now here's what I want you to do. Here's what's gonna happen, right? So Moses um, or Pharaoh, they don't have control. God's got complete control here. So he knows he's gonna harden his heart um, and, and yet God's in absolute control. But notice in verse 15, this time Moses doesn't meet him in the palace because God knows where Pharaoh's gonna be. And, and so Pharaoh comes down, he's coming down to the water, it's probably not far from the palace, and it's now the scene is set on the banks of the Nile. And, and that's because the riverbank is going to be the best seat in the house. It's the best seat in the house for Pharaoh to see what he's going to do. He wants to show Pharaoh his control over this Nile, right? And, and, and remember, this is a massive river, it's the life stream of the nation. So he tells Moses, I want you to, here's the way you're going. You're not going to the palace, you're going to the river, and Pharaoh's gonna be there. Now, doubtlessly, this was probably Pharaoh's routine. He would get up in the morning. Um, most likely, uh, he would go down and he would bathe. But many theologians believe that this was a time of year where the Nile grew and got wide at times, and it was an annual worship of the Nile. And, and so this is a time when he would worship the god uh, Hapi, which was the god of the Nile. And so it's possible that he was not coming down just to bathe, but he was coming down to worship the Nile. So God says, look, I don't want you to go in and talk to him in the palace. Let's meet him where he's about ready to worship. And so he sends Moses to the shore 
of the Nile here. And so this could have been the time, it's possible that the nation worshiped the God of the Nile. So Moses is confronting Pharaoh in the very act of idolatrous worship. It's possible. Right in the middle of his worship of this river God, right? Uh, Here he, he comes and meets him there. Now notice verse 16. Now you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. But behold, you have not listened until now. Notice the strong words. The, the Lord, the Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you. Right? So he's making a statement. It's my God against your God now. And, and notice you haven't listened. So if Pharaoh lets the people go, now think about this, what's going on in Pharaoh's mind, if he lets the people go and acknowledges that this God who is against him and his gods, if he lets them go on the very first time, that means he's submitted to the God of the Hebrews. He's not gonna do it. He's not gonna do it. So the Lord is gonna compel Pharaoh. He, um, God himself will change his mind because on his own he will not do it because that means that he would have to tell the nation and he would have to say there's a greater God than me, there's a greater God than our river God, our frog gods, all the other gods that, that God is going to slay here, there's a greater God. Now, look at verse 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. This is what, what Moses is supposed to be telling Pharaoh, Right? Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will turn to blood. Verse 18, the fish that are in the Nile will die, the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. So, this is a very important point here in 17. He says, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. Remember back in verse Chapter five, verse two, Pharaoh says, I do not know your God. So this is a whole, this is so fun because we realize you're gonna know me. You're gonna absolutely know who I am. So this is about Pharaoh knowing who God is. And actually the theme of Exodus is knowing the Lord. This is a nation that has not heard from God for over 400 years. So he wants the nation to know who he is and he wants Pharaoh to know who he is. So Pharaoh will soon not need to reply to Moses about information to Yahweh. He'll know that he is this God who who can triumph over anybody and anything. Now notice in the the hand of Aaron is this staff that swallowed up the cobra god, right? Now that same staff that swallowed up the religious um, symbol of Egyptians' religion is now about ready to hover over the Nile, same staff. Same staff we're going to see that'll split the Red Sea. That same staff. So the staff is, is a symbol of the power of God. This is not Aaron and Moses doing this. And then notice also this phrase, and I, I, I always look for these phrases when I study particularly the Old Testament. In verse 17, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. Now, you go, well, isn't Aaron holding that staff out? No, no. I will strike it. The I wills of God throughout the Old Testament are amazing, and you need to study them because I think somewhere along the line we have parts of evangelicalism that believes those are all symbolically applied somewhere else. But God's word is God's word. I will do these things. And so he says in this text, I will do this. These are judgment tones. 
This is God already decided before the foundations of the world what he's going to do here. So God's word often uses these I wills to announce some coming, sweeping transformation that God's about to do. Verse 18, notice this. This is a prediction that's gonna come true. This is gonna get bad. And this is far worse than some red tide. Notice that the fish that are in the Nile will die. Not just this, not the ones along the shore, not the ones in some marina or something. The fish in the Nile will die. And they will find difficulty getting drinking water. So it's a prediction of what's about to happen. Look at 19 through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, over all their reservoirs, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Whoa, verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff, and struck the water that was in the Nile, and in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and all of the water that was in the Nile turned to blood. So, <laughs> look out, God of Nile, the God that swallowed, the, the, the living God who used the staff to swallow up their servants is about ready to swallow up the Nile now. And not only just the Nile, notice its lakes and streams canal systems that Egypt, Egypt had built to move water around for irrigation, pools and reservoirs, and even stored water. So the Nile, it, it, it's gonna, this is going to affect everyone. And, and, the, and the text doesn't say it's at flood stage, um, and I, and I want to make sure, this could have been just a normal Nile that's flowing. And, and when guys try to explain this, it's some kind of red tide, it happens at flood stage, don't cheapen the miracles of God. This is what God does. Verse 21, notice the death of fish show how completely the Lord had removed um, from the river its life-sustaining power. Remember, they looked at the river that was a God of life, a God of fertility. It could, it could produce life for them. That's how they worshiped the Nile. That's why they did all these, these festivals and homage to this God of the Nile. This now God is producing death. Everything dies in it. Everything is suffocated and dies from this water that has turned to blood. So Yahweh takes the life out of the hand of the Nile God. So, so here's their powerful God, the Nile. God, Yahweh, comes and says, I'll just take that life right out of your hand to show that you never had it. Their God is dead, it's polluted, and probably causing nausea at some point. Look at verse 22 with me, the beginning of it. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? I think there, it's fairly easy to explain this. Again, not uh, barring demonic forces within this. I think they had time to mimic this. You know, it doesn't say that they were with him. Doubtlessly, Pharaoh had to call them. He may have had some aids. Uh, they could have done anything to mimic this. But what's interesting about this is instead of fixing the problem, they worsen the problem. What Pharaoh needed and the Egyptians needed was these so-called powerful men to take the blood away. They can't do that. 
And it shows they're not gods or they're, or they're actually not men of any kind of divine power of anything because all they do is cause more problems. And that's what false believers do. That's what false gods do. They cause more problems. And, and so if they're really gods, if they really have power and authority, if they're real magicians, they would have turned the water back to the water that the people needed, not more blood. And don't, don't discount the role of Satan here as the father of lies as well. Notice the end of 22. I'm trying to hurry and finish here. 22 through 23. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord said. And then verse 23. Then Pharaoh turned and he went into the house with no concern even for this. So Pharaoh's heart was, was made strong is the word again. He stiffens it up. He strengthens against it and digs his heels in. And, and, and notice he saw the staff of God destroy his cobras. Now he sees the staff of God destroy the Nile God. But, but this clear display of power seems to have none, if not any effect on him outwardly or, or inwardly. Inwardly is where God changes our lives so the outward comes along. And, and I think, brothers and sisters, we've all seen the hand of God in events in our life and we've watched lost people that we love seem to be unfazed. Like people tell me, I mean, I brought, I brought a friend and it was such a perfect message. It was just exactly what they needed, but they just walked out like nothing happened. Or, or I sat down over coffee and shared the gospel with somebody who's, who, who, who doesn't know Christ and then they just said, that was good for you. I'm glad you got something. I'm glad that works for you. See, the hard heart cannot soften its own heart. God has to take that heart of stone out and make it a heart of flesh. And I think this is a good reminder of these things. Look at the last few verses and then we'll close. I actually have that notes in order here. Let me find my last page. Uh, verse 24 and 25. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile and seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Well, it's interesting that Pharaoh just heads up onto his palace that um, seems to be somewhat outwardly unfazed by this while everybody else is digging around the Nile trying to find something, some water to survive on. Um, I'm sure Pharaoh got what he needed, right? And if people had water that wasn't affected by this or found water, you know, they just took it from them and took care of Pharaoh because he's the head, head monkey mo, right? But the text, it doesn't say that the people were actually successful finding clean water. And, I, and imagine, you know, maybe the water... Before, possibly the water before the, the Nile got struck was making its way still through the soil and maybe some of that water was clean. But doubtlessly, this, this water was tainted with blood. I, I called Dr. Rick today and talked to him about it. I go, what happens? Can you find, how, can you dilute blood in water? And he says, no, you could, if you dump blood into a water and you test it, you would find those platelets. You would find that there was water in there. And if you drink blood, it'll make you sick and you'll throw up. And, and so this is, you gotta understand how bad this is. And for seven days, they're trying to get enough somewhat clean water to survive. And yet this is just the beginning of this. And Pharaoh's just up in his palace letting his people suffer. He doesn't care about them. So man is, man is struggling, isn't he? he? He has no hope against a God who will bring judgment. 
And, and this reminds us that God is in absolute control of this. And, and as we just kind of wind this up and, and look forward to the frogs and the flies and the, the gnats and the flies next week, uh, just think about this for a moment. God's not done judging this earth. And it doesn't take you, uh, no matter where your eschatology lands you at, most, most biblical eschatologies understand that God's still gonna judge this world at some level. And, and people will cry out for the rocks to fall upon them. A third of the earth's population will die. We've not seen that. We know that's gotta be somewhere in the future. That's not happened. Mike was telling me today that that's three billion people. I mean, catastrophic events are coming as God pours his judgment out onto this world. Brings his people away from that and rescues his remnants and and it's coming. And, And when we study the book of Exodus and these type of events, we realize who we're dealing with. We are not dealing with some God that his name is used in vain over and over and over. He's some weak God that can't control things. This is the God who changes water to to blood and water to wine. He's a God that can walk through a nation and take a third of the people if he wants. And he does that. Every home, you'll see, every home mourned over its firstborn when God's done. And so we come before God just as Moses started. Take your shoes off. Be careful how you approach him. He is a loving Abba Father God, but he is a holy God. And we are his children, and we we are not afraid of him. If you're you're here today, I want to make sure we're not afraid of God, but we have an awe for him. We, we, We stand in absolute awe of a God who can, first of all, rescue us, and then has the ability to judge precisely every soul that's ever breathed on this earth. And so I hope, I hope when I'm done with this series, and I, I'll, I'll try to do better with my notes next time, I apologize for that. When we're done with this series, especially in Exodus here, that you and I walk out of here and we go, I serve an awesome God. Even more than what I believed when I started this. That's my goal. I always pray, Lord, help us love you and desire you more when we came into this room, uh, when we leave this room than when we came into this room. And I trust God did that even with my mix-up of notes. (laughs) Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in our life, Lord. And um, we we stand here astounded, Lord, as we step back and kind of look at what you're doing, Lord. You first start by swallowing up this, this God snake, Lord, that the Egyptians held so tightly to. It was a reference of their religious sovereign power, Lord. And you swallowed it up like it barely existed. And theirs was gone and the staff of God was left. And then you took on their God that was the God of fertility, the God of life in the very first plague. And all their God could do was produce death, dead fish, nausea, doubtlessly sickness, and probably people died. That's all that God could do after the true and living God was done with it. And so, Lord, we recognize that you are an all-powerful God. And you love us and you care for us. But yet you do not take sin lightly. 
You oppose those who oppose you. And so, Lord, remind us of your strength and power. And, Lord, cause us to be your children who, who are not afraid of you, but are in awe of you. Lord, I think that's a healthy view that we need of you, Lord. We are, we are not afraid of you. You are our Abba Father. But we stand in awe of you. And we thank you for having all things in control. And, Lord, when this world gets crazy as we see things happening even now, may we turn to it and say our God does not change. He's immutable. The same God that struck the Nile is now still in full control of the United States and the electoral system and who's going to be the next president and all the things that often we fret over. You are the one that's in control of that. And so help us rest in that. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.